My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Cincinnati was founded three days before the full moon, May 13, 1783, the same year the Treaty of Paris was signed and the same year America was truly formed. And today, we'll continue our dive into this odd group whose Greco-Roman proclivities make this thinker wonder if the emperor had retained his throne over centuries of generations, over oceans and back. J.J. Vance joins me, Mystic Mark, here to discuss this mysterious society of the Cincinnati. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation conversation with JJ Vance. started by the Society of Cincinnati and the Society had a, an interest in obviously surveying and mapping these mounds and preserving them but then later the Smithsonian was definitely interested in destroying these mounds and throwing away like all the giant human skeletons that they found so there is, there's definitely it seemed to me some sort of turning point and again possibly going back to these feuding factions within the society and then the society families about what to do with these mounds because clearly there was an interest in preserving them and then later an interest in getting rid of all of the history within these mounds again the giant human skeletons etc and the smithsonian was started by the society families and the society membership because the fellow that would later become the president of the confederate states of america jefferson davis was a u.s senator out of the state of mississippi he was a member of the society of cincinnati in fact he married General Knox's daughter, and if I, as I pointed out before, General Knox was the fellow who got General Washington to, to start the society. So Jefferson Davis was married into the up, upper echelon of the society. He was also a member through his military service. He was a captain in the War of 1812, and which is the membership goes from the early membership. It's my understanding that the officers of the 1776 wars and the 1812 wars were considered members of the Society of Cincinnati, and then later the enlisted members of the Revolutionary Army, the wars of 1776. After the Civil War, apparently the enlisted members were then invited in, into the Society for membership. So it seems Jefferson Davis was both a member and married into the upper echelon of the Society, and he was the U.S. Senator that was responsible for the, the legislation for the Smithsonian.
Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and with me today is a very special guest. Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, JJ Vance. It's a pleasure to have you here, and, uh, and yeah. Tell us a little bit about what brings you here today. Well, Mark, I appreciate the invite. I look forward to the conversation. And that's great to hear that's where you heard about the Society of Cincinnati. I do try to disseminate that, that that kind of notion around the interwebs because it is an often overlooked and undescribed organization amongst quote-unquote secret societies. And in fact, that's how I came to, to know Stephen Snyder there, Reckler. I heard him on the Skeptico podcast talking about the Society of Cincinnati, and I reached out to him because virtually no one talks about it. And I, the subject that I've been deeply interested in and covered on my podcast at the Operation GCD podcast, I've been covering that topic of the Society of Cincinnati and specifically their interest in the ancient architecture of America, the mounds. And I do believe there's a deep occult interest in the mounds, not only amongst the society specifically, but other quote unquote secret societies. They're of the same bloodlines or family family trees of the same folks in the society. Right, right. And this is, I mean, it's really fascinating. I'm glad that we were introduced to each other because you are also born, if I may disclose this, in Connecticut. And it's kind of interesting considering that where we're going to be discussing for a moment here today Ohio, where the Society of Cincinnati really kind of took their institution and planted it into the American soil there most prominently. Ohio, a specific northeast corner of it, was owned by Connecticut. There was even a small war called the Yankee-Penna War, where the Pennsylvania citizens and the Connecticut citizens fought over the rights to this land west of Pennsylvania and Connecticut was so bold they even I don't know if it was a king or whoever drew these borders but the Connecticut land deed was so bold it said that Connecticut owned all the land from the Atlantic all the way to the Pacific which obviously that didn't pan out I mean we might find out that some wealthy folks from Connecticut made their way into states like California, Utah, and others. But it seems like there has always been this sort of relationship between where I've been researching, Connecticut, and what it sounds like you've been researching, which is Cincinnati, the Cincinnati area where you're currently at, and the Society of Cincinnati, which obviously those names are connected, right? So where does this all begin? Let's kind of, before we talk about my side of things with Skull and Bones in Connecticut, we'll revisit all that. What originally got you interested in researching Cincinnati, the Society of Cincinnati, and this kind of Ohio power center? Because it's a power center in many ways, even some in the underground too, like the black market, Ohio is kind of prominent as well. So how did you first get into researching this? That's a great question, Mark. Yeah. I mean, you're spot on. I, in your assessment, kind of, I just started kind of looking into my, my background. So I am, I do hail from Ridgefield, Fairfield County, Connecticut, originally by way of West Virginia into the Cincinnati region. So kind of just looking at the history of the areas I lived in and looking at some of the, some, like you said, the power centers of, of these areas, be it Connecticut or here in Cincinnati, or the crossover between the two, because obviously the Alfonso Taft, the founder of Skull and Bones there at, at Yale University, he set up shop here in Cincinnati afterwards after leaving the Yale and right. 
they set up the Taft dynasty here, set up out of Cincinnati and, and quite, and they're not maybe a direct hereditary member of line of the society of Cincinnati, but the Taft family is definitely a society family. If you know what I mean? Right. So it's sometimes it's tough to tell who is and who is not the member with amongst those kind of those family trees when you're getting this, cause there's so many, so many original members and so many hereditary lines that they could be membership of. So it gets a little tricky because these families interbreed quite frequently. But yeah, so there's a lot of crossover there. And I just started looking back at some of those, like you said, the power centers. And uh, and what really drew me to the Society of Cincinnati was I was stationed, served 20 years in the United States Air Force military police. And I was stationed in Washington, D.C. at headquarters about 2009 or so. I, I was living near the headquarters of the Society of Cincinnati. And I'd often see it on, on I'd take a jog every day, I'd go out for a run. I'd run past this place and I'd see the sign that said, Society of Cincinnati Anderson House. And I one day I finally decided, well, I'm just going to go in and see what this is about because I'm from Cincinnati and it's named Cincinnati. So I, I just walked in one day. They let you walk in. They'll let you walk around. Pretty nice folks. But that's their headquarters there. It's in the DuPont Circle region of Washington, D.C. And that's kind of how I, I found out about the Society of Cincinnati. Wow. Huh. And DuPont, obviously that name has some definite attachments and connections to a lot of really what made America what it is now, that industrial revolutionary period with the robber barons and DuPont and Rockefeller and all these other folks making tons and tons of profit off of selling gasoline. And this was primarily pushed forward at Yale, right? Yale is where they discovered the process of taking petroleum from rock oil and distilling it or however they do that. Clearly this incredible source of wealth got established and then kind of centered in this interesting kind of, as you said, a lot of these families stuck together, they interbred, now we have a sort of American aristocracy that is populated by people who are members of groups like the Society of Cincinnati. I'm sure there are others, international or national, but Society of Cincinnati seems to be more of a, a patriotic kind of outfit, at least from the get-go. Is that accurate, would you say? I would say, yeah. I think that is an accurate statement from my assessment, but it, from, and also to... To put a note on top of that, it seems from day one there, there's been a dueling factions within the Society of Cincinnati that I would assert is going on still to this day, but originated from events such as Aaron Burr murdering Alexander Hamilton. First one that came to mind as you said that, I'm kind yeah, of thinking like, what do we see now? But Hamilton lionized on Broadway by the political left, right? This sort of artistic left that populates the theater industry. I've always kind of been rubbed the wrong way anytime I've heard that musical. Sometimes you hear like the people play that like from their car or whatever. I've never been to see the actual play. So here I am judging without actually reading the book, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I found that fascinating that they sort of take Hamilton's side. When you look at it, historically what happened, it seems like Burr was the guy who was, I don't know, going about it honestly. I mean, he seemed to have the, he was on the right side of history, so to speak, Burr, whereas Hamilton was, as far as I know, on the side of the banks, on the side of 
Britain, who we had just freed ourselves from. Yeah, I mean, that is how history tells it. I often wonder if that's an accurate tale or not. I know Hamilton was associated with installing a banking system here in, in America, but I often wonder how accurate the tale is, what folks' intentions were, et cetera. Again, because, again, you look at Burr. The one thing I find intriguing about that entire situation is, Aaron, they're both members of the New York chapter, first of all, of the Society of Cincinnati both Burr and Hamilton. But Hamilton was the president general of the entire society at that time. So modern day historians recognize Aaron Burr trying to overthrow the American government immediately following the duel with Hamilton. But it's kind of, it's kind of told in, an, in a story that that's separate from the coup that Burr was trying to accomplish. Is separate than the duel with Hamilton. Well, I would argue that was the first step in the coup. He murdered the president general of the society and I would argue the society has, in large part, run this country since day one. And that's been their purpose, in my opinion. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I wasn't aware of the other details surrounding this. I'm guilty as charged for just remembering what I was taught in school. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> but it, it is the, that is the, how they kind of have dumbed us all down, right? By giving us a sort of half-truths in history. But it's the, it's, the, it's the Disney fairy tale version of history, right? Right. So now let's dive a little deeper then. So clearly Burr was not in the upper hierarchy. He had to kill the president in order to kick off this coup. So what what's your assessment of his motivation? Obviously, it's hundreds of years ago. I don't know if this is something you've looked at directly, but just kind of your take on Burr and maybe who he was aligned with back then that would cause him to do something like this. Oh, I mean, it's fairly well documented. It's a good question there, Mark. It's very well documented that he was being funded by European interests. Okay. Numerous European interests, including, I believe the fellow's name was Blennerhassett. I think it's a strange name. There's an island named after him in the Ohio River over towards Point Pleasant area, like Mothman region of West Virginia. And that's where Burr and that fellow were hiding out after Burr was on the run for trying to overthrow the American government. So it was, he had some clear connections to European interests because that fellow was a British fellow. And uh, there were some other European interests that I, I can't quote off the top of my head, but that one is in specific. Huh. Yeah, I, I see this guy now, Harmon Blennerhassett, Anglo-Irish lawyer and a member of the Society of United Irishmen. Yeah, he was financing the coup for sure. Huh. And it's interesting to look at the aftermath of the Burr conspiracy they got banished to what essentially would later become texas and that area of texas was essentially the power center for the confederate army the confederate states of america so there seemed to be a direct line of succession there between the first coup there within the society and the later coup because what's often overlooked with the civil war is that's a dispute between the society of cincinnati because that they divided over that over the civil war the society did with the northern chapters versus the southern chapters just like the union versus the confederacy right right and this is that sort of esoteric version of history that they leave out where we're told this sort of propagandized version of the civil war where oh it's all about slavery it's all about this and that and the south was for slavery when really there were these important sort of notable people of their time 
who had more sway than the average person, yet the average person gets the brunt of history. Now it's like the South is guilty for the Civil War. Meanwhile, it wasn't the average person. It was these men in offices making decisions for other people. I mean, of course, I'm sort of summarizing things a bit haphazardly here, but but it does feel like the Civil War is one of these events, and we're kind of fast-forwarding a little bit in history from when the Society of Cincinnati was founded, but you look at the Civil War and all we're told about it, hardly is the Society of Cincinnati ever even mentioned. I mean, when you look at the sure. Wikipedia page for the Society They'll have you think that it ended after the Revolutionary War when clearly it has this political influence even to this day. Absolutely. You're spot on, Mark. If I can give you another relative note to how important the society was to the Civil War. One second. Pardon me. George Washington adopted. He was Well, technically, he didn't start the society. Technically, it's attributed to Henry Knox, General Knox of Washington's army as in Fort Knox, Kentucky, where allegedly there's gold being stored there. But to be honest, there's no gold there. But so it's typically attributed to Henry Knox asking George Washington to start the Society of Cincinnati. So that's how the story goes down. And it's actually older than the United States because the society was founded in May of 1783. And the Treaty of Paris, which is what formed America, didn't occur until September of 1783. So technically, the secret society we're talking about is older than America in that in, in all actuality. But so George Washington was the first president general until he he passed off to George to Alexander Hamilton, and a few and Hamilton was the president general for a few years before he died. I would assert that Washington was also murdered, and obviously Hamilton was murdered. So I think there was there's a lot more feuding going on in, internally between the society and this and the society folk attached to them, the families attached to these society members that, that led to the deaths of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. And I would claim it's probably the control over the the, the new nation of America. Because obviously, there's a lot of moneyed interests in the formation of this country. And I think that's, if we're being honest about the situation, it's all, it always boils down to money. Don't you agree, Mark? It always boils down to who's getting paid. Yeah. Yeah. And on this show and through my research, I've heard a number of theories about George Washington. Everything from he was allied with the English to... He was allied with the French, to he was allied with aliens, as ancient <laughs> aliens tells us. So, and it's always he, a good one. I like the alien one. I mean, well, I, you know, there's any validity to it, but it's fun. It's a fun one to entertain, and is not. Yeah, and I mean, Masonic imagery aside, that painting of him floating in the clouds, as if he's like the hand of God reaching down. I forget where that is. If it's the rotunda or uh, is the rotunda? You're right. It's the rotunda. It's the apotheosis of man or apotheosis right. of George Washington. Right, and paired with the fact that uh, if we're what we're told is true that Washington had this sort of vision somewhere during the Revolutionary War. I mean, it, it, he does have all the tropes of the sort of mythological archetype that they try to put out in front of everything. But if what we're told is true, I mean, who knows? Maybe he, he was this sort of prophetic person and that's why he had enemies right because there there always is these sort of people who seem to follow synchronicity i mean we have examples of people who are still alive today 
Maybe I have Manly P. Hall on the mind, but I've spoken with his former assistant, Ronnie Pontiac, who said that Manly P. Hall had this sort of going on in his life where there's just synchronicity at every turn. And I wonder if that's the case with great people like Washington or it's the more cynical truth where they were just kind of used as a mythological figure to give people a nice story and not look into groups like the Society of Cincinnati and how they maybe poisoned this man or, I don't know, knocked him over the head or who knows what. I mean, certainly seems like our commander-in-chief now has been knocked over the head of a couple times. <laughs> no, no, for sure. No, I think you're onto something there, though, because I, I think he, there was George Washington had a very mystical understanding of his universe. And I think in large part, he thought he was the modern day incarnation of Cincinnatus, the figurehead in which the Society of Cincinnati venerates. Right. And that's a really fascinating aspect of all this, because we're told that Greece gave us democracy. We're told that the Native American Confederacy helped create the ideas that populated the Constitution. But now... These men who were, for the most part, the guys who fought and made this all a reality in this country possible, they're venerating Roman farmers, right? I mean, how does that even make sense? Like, who is <laughs> Cincinnatus and why would he see himself as a Roman patrician statesman and military leader from 430 BC? I mean, that's, it seems out of nowhere, but when you look and I don't know, maybe find that these guys are all occultists, deists, Freemasons. Maybe it starts to make a little more sense. But what? how do you make sense of that? That's a great question, Mark, because I've often wondered how he was chosen. In my studies, I've been actively studying the society figure for about 14 years now. And I've often wondered what would cause them to venerate this one man. I have no idea. I've concluded inconclusive. That's my conclusion on that, because I honestly couldn't tell you, but as the story goes, you're right. Cincinnati was a farmer, and he was actually in the Roman, an ancient Greeksman, or from ancient Greek ethnicity, I guess, but as a Roman citizen in the Roman Republic back in 500 BC, circa 500 BC there. And he allegedly took control of the Roman Republic as a, basically a military dictator to fight off invaders to the Roman Republic, apparently two times, and then both times retiring after the war was over, and then, as the legend goes, giving the power, quote-unquote, power back to the people of the Republic. And I believe George Washington, in large part, again, thought he was a modern incarnation of Cincinnati because, A, he was the president general of the society, the founding, founding president general of the society of Cincinnati, and, B, he actually did those things, the same thing Cincinnati did, and spoke upon his retirement from his presidency as giving the power back to the people. And he did the same thing in his quote-unquote victory speech at Francis Tavern in Lower Manhattan, which is still a active bar today. And that's where he gave his victory speech for the revolution. And Because at the time, as again, as legend goes, as modern historians tell the story as well, many folks wanted George Washington to remain in power at the end of the war in, in, in a king-type fashion, and they tried to get him to do the same thing upon the end of his second term as president, and he declined both times, asserting that America doesn't have a, monarch, a monarchy. In fact, George Washington was actually ardently opposed to political parties as well, but that's often not described about, about what the man's actual beliefs and 
intentions were politically speaking. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, given the sort of half-truths about men like George Washington, I've never heard that before, that he was not to say that you're wrong, but to say that we're given these half-truths and not the full picture of who these people really were in order to serve the current agenda, right? I mean, it's interesting. I wonder how George Washington would be described by textbooks from the 1800s as opposed to textbooks from the 1900s, right? I'm sure there was quite a difference there, but... That's a good question. You're probably onto something there for sure, because that is how history often gets scrubbed out over time, just kind of slowly over time. These textbooks just, they just start telling a different tale. Well, yeah. and not, George Washington or any of the founding fathers, that seems to be, especially the modern attack to, to, to scrub those guys from history. Right, right. It, not to sound trite, but people 200, 300 years ago during Washington's time would have had a fair, fairly like expansive knowledge of Greek and biblical literature, A, because that was the most of what was available, and B, they were, according to what we can see recorded, far more literate and intelligent than the average person today, not insulting the listeners of this podcast, because I know we're not average, especially folks like you and I, JJ, but but. Yeah, it's just so odd. We're not really shown this kind of history of Rome. It's not highlighted as much as I remember Caesar being highlighted, the senatorial sort of drama and uh, intrigue, and then also the gladiatorial Olympic. I mean, we see these sort of, I guess, modern iterations today in things like the Olympics and the UFC and whatever else, but it definitely seems like there's a whole nother side of modern culture that still lives and breathes this stuff, right? I mean, maybe more so in European society where Latin is still maybe read and taught more than it is here, but it does seem like, like, these men who founded our had a whole nother kind of culture that they didn't quite, I guess, push forward so much as kept to themselves. I guess, I don't know if that's just sort of my attempt of making sense of what I don't know, but yeah, what do you think? Any response to that little rant there? No, for sure. You're spot on there, Mark. There is definitely a deep veneration for the ancient Greek stuff amongst these men, the founding fathers in the Society of Cincinnati specifically for example and there's an epicenter of that activity relative to the society's interest in the mounds as well and all that and all that goes back to in and around george washington because again he's the one who started off was the president general of the society but he's also the one who dating back until his early teenage years he was out surveying and the mapping and surveying the mounds in the what was then known as the Ohio country, it was the, long before it was the, the state of Ohio. In the city, obviously, the city of Cincinnati, which is I would argue is very important to the society still today, and as you noted earlier in this podcast already, is a very power is a power center in politics and money, financial markets in this nation, and has been since the early onset of this country when. That was the gateway to the West, Cincinnati. If you wanted to go westbound from the original colonies, you had to go through Cincinnati for many years. And that's where over year, over the years, it just picked up all of that power in the financial hub of operations, which right. still continues on to this day. 
Well, and it's easy. It's easy now to forget with the highways and WalMarts and all these big concrete superstructures that America was once this wild frontier, and it still is in a lot of ways. I mean, I live on the East Coast where everything's kind of developed and mapped out. Back then, I it was probably very easy for these guys to relate to a guy like Cincinnatus as he was depicted in these secret circles that research this kind of stuff or taught each other this kind of stuff. I mean, whoever felt this character Cincinnatus was important certainly preserved his tales, right? His stories. And yeah, I'm sure they related to a guy like that who, as we're told, was sort of an agriculturalist who had this sort of military prowess when his nation needed it. And even is kind of elevated to this sort of godlike figure saying that he was granted supreme power over the entire Roman Empire. It's almost like an egregore or something like that. But but yeah, I can see how Washington and others like him would have idealized themselves in that image. Oh, for sure. Well, that's George Washington, right? That's what he did. He was a farmer. Yeah. He came when his country was in need. He came and, and came back and became president because there was a, I believe it was a six or seven year gap in between the time which he gave the power back to the people and the creation of America in, in September of 83, 1783, before he became president. So he went back to being a farmer again, which is again, as the story of Cincinnati, he came back once again to save the Roman Republic. And that's, again, I think George Washington viewed himself as that modern, uh, modern incarnation of Cincinnati. But if, if I can just give you one quick note back on the, on the, actually the ancient Greek connections to all, all this is and where I was mentioning the epicenter was with the society in the mounds is the oldest mounds in, in America are known as the Adena mounds. And that name comes from Chillicothe, Ohio. And that's a fellow who was a member of the society. It's named after his mansion and grounds. He was an early, I think maybe the second or third governor of Ohio, a fellow by the name of Thomas Worthington. He was a friend of George Washington and again, an early political leader here in Ohio. And his, his mansion here was designed by Benjamin Latrobe, the same fellow who designed the U.S. Capitol. So it's the ancient Greek revival architecture that is seen at the U.S. Capitol. It's seen here at this at the mansion of Thomas Worthington, which was named the Adena Mansion. And he's the first one who, quote unquote, excavated and discovered these Adena Mounds. And that's where the name Adena comes from is this name, the name of this mansion there in this apparent ancient Greek word for what's often translated as goodwill or good hope, but what we call it here in modern English, Adina. Yeah, I'm reading here that it says Thomas Worthington recorded that he chose Adina as the name for his estate because it referred to places remarkable for the delightfulness of their situation. The museum at Adina has an exhibit which claims Adina is based on a Hebrew word, which Greek and Hebrew definitely have strong linguistic connections. People were reading all sorts of languages in the Greek culture, but and translating them to Greek. Oh yeah. So there goes the, that's what I'm saying. So there's, uh, that's the apparent translation because that, there goes the dispute from moment one when you're calling these mounds Adina. No one wants to agree on really where the name comes from. Oh wow. Yeah. So, and then no one really wants to agree on who built these mounds, these Adina mounds, and no one really wants to agree on the years in which these mounds were built. And then that's just the Adena Mounds because the mounds built after the Adena Mounds, the Hopewell Mounds. But so we're talking Adena is like 200 BC to like 480. And then somewhere around 600 AD to 1000 are the Hopewell Mounds. 
there's no clear delineation of who those people are either. And the name Hopewell simply derives from a fellow's farm near Columbus, Ohio, where the first quote-unquote Hopewell Mound was discovered. The farm's owner was named Hopewell. So that's where the name for the Hopewell people come from. So it's we know very little about the folks who build these mounds, but I find I do find it interesting that the epicenter of the name Adina and the early onset of the interests of these mounds all, all go back to the society. And they, again, the society is building these ancient Greek structures in the Adina Mansion in Chillicothe, Ohio. It's a nice place. I've been there. I've visited numerous times. It's uh, some superb architecture, that's for sure. And there's not many uh, buildings that are built like that anymore yeah. in the, the, the current century, basically, because buildings that are built these days are pretty ugly. And I'll, I will at least say that ancient Greek revival architecture, much like you've seen at the U.S. Capitol, the seen at the Adena Mansion in Chillicothe, it, it is a unique, uh, unique structure. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. And it's interesting you point out the fact that people can't really agree I wasn't aware of that when I pointed out what Wikipedia says as an explanation for Adina and the meaning, but it is, I wasn't aware that there's this kind of controversy. It's sort of interesting because the Adina culture, as far as I've read from sources that traditional archaeologists would probably rub their nose at, or I don't know what the right phrase is there, but they would not be happy with Barry Fell. You could read about Barry Fell. I like Barry Fell's books. I think they're very interesting, and his theory kind of connects some dots, take all of it, take some of it. I think it's very fascinating, but when you look at what he says is that, about... Mark, is that, may I interject? Is that America B.C.? Is that Barry Fell? Yeah, America B.C. also has another book, nice. Saga America. And if you're aware of his book, then you might be ready for what I'm about to say, which is these structures, if they were built by, let's say, early European explorers of America pre-Columbus. Barry Fell says that he's found evidence that Egyptians, Celts, Iberians, Libyans, Chinese, and Basque people have all been in America before Columbus. But it seems like, as far as the Society of Cincinnati, Rome, and they go, that there's a far, or there's a lot of connections between the thick sort of prehistory period right with rome kind of taking over all these different parts of europe and christianizing you know them afterwards right because the rome was this pagan empire that becomes the holy roman empire and all of europe is kind of changed during that period whereas you have this undercurrent that remains of pagan esotericism. And I wonder if that strain, those cults within what became outwardly a Christian empire, had resurrected or preserved rather this information about pre-Columbian voyages, because it does seem like the Society of Cincinnati is choosing to go after these specific places and i mean even people who are wealthy that i don't know maybe aren't associated directly with the society of cincinnati maybe i'm wrong here but the jekyll island crew i don't know what their connection was to the society of cincinnati but their island jekyll island is on a ancient shell mound 
Oh, for sure. And my point being is like, what if esoterically speaking, they're trying to connect with ancient sites of peoples that they aren't admitting to being connected to no behind the scenes they know it they just aren't going to admit to it i mean it makes sense especially when you look at some of the like direct correlations between areas like cincinnati and these mounds wisconsin the east coast and all these sites that show pre-columbian activity that again, not discounting the Native Americans, I think they were involved, totally involved, but definitely what we're told about them might be skewed by, again, these same people who are trying to keep all this a secret for some reason. I mean, have you stumbled into this mystery as well? How do you make sense of it? No, I mean, for sure. I think you're spot on. And especially with the creation of the Federal Reserve in Jekyll Island, the Rockefeller family is definitely a society family out of the New York chapter. They're an early Dutch family. They were known, they were actually known as the Rockefellers, I believe is how they originally spelled their name. But they oh. definitely had representation in Washington's army in the wards of 1776 out of the New York chapter so, of the society. So they're definitely involved. And you mentioned the DuPonts earlier. Now, I don't know the specific lineage of the DuPonts off the top of my head. I do know that they were part of the Huguenot. Their ancestry goes into the French Huguenots, which is essentially the equivalent to the the Jacobites over there in the UK. And they, both of those groups were descendants of the Knights Templar and were in constant feuds with feuding royal families over there. And that was the beef the Huguenots had there out of France as well. And I know, so, and the descendants of both of those groups became the Society of Cincinnati. So there is a lineage between the, these secret societies, as you mentioned, over over time, likely passing on this knowledge. I do agree with that as well. It seems like they do. The organizations like the, again, the Templar ancestry of either the Jacobites or the Huguenots, and then those folks later, their descendants later forming the Society of Cincinnati because the Society of Cincinnati is half French as well. So there's the American half and there's the French half. The French half, the general in charge of that was... Marquis de Lafayette. He was a close associate with George Washington and, right. and well, well beloved across America in the years aftermath of him getting thrown out of France. Yeah, it's interesting. You have all these places named Lafayette after him in New York City. I've seen his statue in Lafayette Square. And I don't know if Rochambeau was his like second in command or something, but through my neck of the woods, New England, you may remember this from when you were here, but there's this, I think it's Route 6. It's very interesting. The United States Grand Army or something like that, and their logo is an upside-down pentagram. Go figure. But <laughs> they're also, the, that place is also named the Rochambeau Highway, and I have always like drove by this sign and thought, like, who is Rochambeau? Does that have anything to do with that weird game that rock, paper, scissors, it used to be called Rochambeau? Like, is there any connection there? It's kind of an Americanism where you have like these, like, I don't know, seemingly benign things that have this like really dark past, like clowns, for instance, or name any other something from the 19th century or 18th or 20th century U.S., but, no, for sure. I had the exact same thought when I came across old General Rochambeau. Was, I thought, does that have anything to do with paper, rock, scissors? And yeah. strangely enough, I don't think it does. 
who knows? What is his connection? The tree is named in the list. Yeah, I might have gone off on a long one there, but is he at all connected to Lafayette? And if not, tell us more about Lafayette. No, I mean, you're right. He was one of the French generals, and I think that's something that's often overlooked in our current tale of history in our modern era is that the French had such an active role in the creation of America. Oh, yeah. And it was really a joint revolution, the French Revolution and the American Revolution, and at the head of both sides of that was the Society of Cincinnati. Wow. Now, the Society of Cincinnati in France, how, I mean, was this connected at all to, like, what we would consider, I mean— or what historians today call like this Rosicrucian, Rosy Cross kind of alchemy, Freemasonry. I mean, there's a lot of different secret societies, quote unquote, that were around in France and the United States at that time. Is the Society of Cincinnati an umbrella where all of these groups came to like their leaders were a part of? Or is it something where it was like, well, factions, right? Where Society of Cincinnati had some competition out there. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there are a number of factions, both internally and externally with the society that it feuds with, because that's at least looking at historical events that society, that society has been involved in and trying to kind of apply the concepts of these occult understandings or you know, interactions between occult groups. And if all of these society Cincinnati members are involved in huge historic geopolitical events, it's just trying to make sense of, what's actually going on there. And I think there's, again, a few internally to the society, starting back to the years of Aaron Burr and his coup and carrying on many years since then and probably on to our modern era. And I think that there's external, obviously, conflict going on with the society. And that would be, I'll give you a good example for an external conflict. And that would be the World War II. World War II, the Allied forces was basically run by the Society of Cincinnati because the United States president, the president of the United States, gets membership into the Society of Cincinnati by virtue of being the president of the United States. So you don't have to be an hereditary member, meaning your forefather didn't have to serve in Washington's army in the wars of 1776. You can get elected president and be a member that way. One example would be John F. Kennedy. He was not a hereditary member of the society, but once elected president of the United States, He's a member of the Society of Cincinnati. And in World War II, FDR is a member of the Society of Cincinnati by virtue of him being president of the United States. And over there in the United Kingdom, you have Winston Churchill. He was a member of the Society of Cincinnati. Now, he's an interesting character because this is kind of a good example of what I mean. It's sometimes tough to track who is and who is not a member. Sometimes they'll brag about it and tell you they're a member, but other times not so much. And usually it's the, uh, the son is through the paternal heritage, so it's through the male line, line from the original membership. However, in cases like Winston Churchill, his mother was an American, and his maternal grandfather didn't have any sons. So his membership, his maternal grandfather's membership, passed down through his daughter, which was Winston Churchill's mother, and on to Winston Churchill. So that's something that's often overlooked and not described from history as the Society of Cincinnati's role in World War II because, again, they're controlling the Allied forces, both Winston Churchill and over here, FDR. Right. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you kind of fold in skull and bones, which I know we're going to get around to showing some of the connections or further connections between skull and bones and the society, abbreviated for now. 
But it's interesting because when you fold them in, you see that not only were they playing both sides of England and the United States, but they were also playing Germany as well by supplying money and guns and all sorts of things to them. So, I mean, it just goes all the way around. Jeez. So who are some other, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about Lafayette. What role did he play? Because I've heard him come up on shows like the Penny Royal as a sort of marker of synchronicity in some ways, as a sort of psycho pomp in a geographical sense where for some reason there's this sort of like synchronicity to where these places are that are named after them and their association with high strangeness. I mean, was Lafayette kind of like a French occultist or was he just a politician that was kind of taking advantage of secret societies? Because I think that's something that kind of the lines get blurred there where people equate secret societies with occultism when a lot of times it seems more like spycraft. It seems more like political. It's the stuff, the kind of stuff that like honest journalists should be reporting on, not like curious magicians oh for sure i i just generally speaking i agree with you on occult societies i look at them like i often joke around and say see the cia and scientology are very similar the only difference is the cia is a cult purveying themselves as an intelligence operation and scientology is an intelligence operation purveying itself as a cult oh yeah well yeah i think that's yeah that's a great way to put it jeez but you see where like i think almost that plays to the these groups advantage where i mean the average person hears a name like skull and bones and they think of college hijinks and maybe like spooky gothic type setting or something like that with a couple of blue blood type kids like spanking each other with wooden paddles or something right i mean like skull and bones and has like a sort of mystic connotation the society of cincinnati not so much not i mean unless you're aware of who cincinnatus was and maybe some of the deeper aspects to his story i mean Skull and Bones definitely takes the cake for spookiness, but I, I've heard, I've never been to Cincinnati. Not to, Actually, no, I think I have been to Cincinnati. I think I drove through there. If there's a lot of potholes in Cincinnati, and that's not Columbus I'm thinking of, or maybe they both have a ton of potholes. So you're spot, spot on both. So many potholes in both. <laughs> yeah, I remember all the potholes, but yeah, I think I was in Cincinnati now that I mention it. And uh, The mayor a few years ago here in Cincinnati, if I may interject on a pothole topic here, Mark. Go ahead. The, the mayor in Cincinnati a few years back was running on a platform of legalizing pot to pay for the potholes pot for potholes i mean geez i would love that because anytime (laughs) i've driven through ohio i definitely feel like the cops are particularly observant and up your ass so yeah yeah the cops right here at dicks and we got a lot of potholes it's a great place come visit cincinnati folks (laughs) well and i guess i i hate to bully cincinnati because i love ohio i've been there a couple of times (laughs) i know you probably feel differently but is it like the same way I walk around Yale University and I can point out kind of like this spooky or architecture associated with Skull and Bones and Yale, do you have that same thing going on in Cincinnati? Because it seems like this time period, the wealthy people that built Cincinnati, they had some interesting like 
hobbies, so to speak, right? I mean, does that come through with the way things look in Cincinnati? I mean, obviously infrastructure isn't a strong strong reason to go there, but what about like architecture? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of that going on here, especially as you point out, the early settlers of this area having in such wealthy folks of the new, mostly of the New England blue blood type of folks like the Taft family. The Alfonso Tafts and crew and some other the, the society families from New England, like a lady from the Putnam family. So she was a descendant of General Rufus Putnam, I believe was his name, out of Rhode Island. And she started a small village here in just in the suburb of the eastern side of Cincinnati called Marimont, which is named after her family's estate in Rhode Island. But was also uh, the translates to a very mound like translation as far as the French the French word there for Marie Mont. Marie, Marie Mount would be a, one of the uh, society's early attribution was to uh, King Louis and Marie Antoinette. So a lot of things are named Louis and Marie as a result of that, like Louis. And same with Lafayette. A lot of things are named after Lafayette. A lot of things are named after Washington. These are all sites the society named. So this lady, being a society family, she also was carrying on that same same lineage of in namesake, and she secured a area of mounds on the eastern side of Cincinnati in a private preservation in the small village that she created in I think the 1920s. And she also hired some of the world's top architects to come in and design the buildings and homes in this village. So it's a, it's a very unique place, and it was clearly intentionally built around these mounds to preserve these mounds. So that's in that's actually in their trust of the village. These mounds are in this preservation. And again, she's from a society family and follows the same kind of society namesake with naming it Mary Mount. Yeah. I've heard much about Mary Mount, Mary Mound. I think my friend Michael Wan even talks. I know Steven Snyder's covered it a bit, but I think he had Mike Wan on to talk about it. And Mike's talked to me about it a little bit. No, oh, nice. What did he have to say? I believe he's Mike Wan. My understanding, he has a lot of research into the mounds of what was it, the Pennsylvania region. Yeah, well... Mounds, yes, in one case, although there aren't many mounds in Pennsylvania, Mike's identified a place, at least that I'm aware of. I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong there. There might be more on the western side, but Mike's researched places around the Susquehanna River and one point that he calls High Point. I don't know if that's the actual name of the park, like High Point Park or whatever, but it was sort of accented with this very interesting landscape artwork at the top and Mike identifies it as a special place in his 40th, his right to the 40th parallel book. So I'm aware of that. As far as mounds though, there's one that Ross Ben took my girlfriend and I to when we visited Ross Ben in Philadelphia. But as far as I know, that mound isn't like registered anywhere that's just a mound that he's aware of through his research into the area as far as i know like the east coast they kind of leveled a lot of those sites just because back when they were developing a lot of this area they didn't have laws in place that respected native americans I mean, they still don't in a lot of places. And as far as like history goes, they certainly weren't as concerned as they might be today with preserving ancient sites. They even had in Michigan events where they would take all of these pottery shards that they found. And I don't I think somebody declared them a hoax. I don't remember their name, but my friend Chad Stempke was talking about this 
where they found all these Native American quote-unquote artifacts, these very intricate carved pieces of pottery and other material. I don't remember the exact material, but it was something that required quite a bit of technical precision to pull off. It wasn't your average just like carving of stone. And they were declared a hoax and everybody got together and just destroyed them all, right? So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that went on in the 19th century in America where people had very little appreciation for these types of antiques or these types of ancient sites because there was a sort of racist attitude towards other cultures, at least that's how we're told today, right? So I wonder how much is lost, but... You sound like you're going to chime in. I don't know much about what Mike says about Marymount. I actually think I was confusing that for a second. As much as I love to bring up my friend Mike, Ronnie Pontiac, another interesting character and friend that I've made through the podcast. In his book, American Metaphysical Religion, he describes a guy named Thomas Morton who founded a place in Massachusetts called Mary Mound. And he like did this, I forget if it's Mary Mount or Mary Mound, but he did this like ritual there on May Day or March, maybe the Ides of March, one of those holidays. And he became kind of an enemy amongst the early colonial inhabitants because he was trading all these goods and weapons, firearms, with the local Native Americans, and obviously that wasn't like the Bostonians that were making Boston what it is now then. They didn't like that. So, yeah, I'm confusing some things here. But but here, reel me back in. Do you have any thoughts on what <laughs> I said? I'm doing the conversation here. Yeah, I, th- there are. You're right. A lot of the mounds have been destroyed. I, th- I would argue, and I can argue with a variety of different facts of why I think that, but... Yeah, the, especially with the early cities, like like you point out with Philadelphia. Yeah, many of those sites have been destroyed, but the early sites that weren't that were still there during the colonization of that period of Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin was deeply interested in many mountain sites in that area, and many mountain sites that he were interested that wasn't he had interest in are now today named after Franklin. So a lot of the stuff along the Franklin Parkway area of Philadelphia and the uh, some of the museums down there. Those were all some of the mountain sites of Philadelphia that still existed during the colonial period there. And now you're right about the destruction of these things. And it's interesting because the Smithsonian was both started by the Society of Cincinnati and the Society had an interest in obviously surveying and mapping these mounds and preserving them. But then later, the Smithsonian was definitely interested in destroying these mounds and throwing away like all the giant human skeletons that they found. So... There is, there's definitely, it seemed to me, some sort of turning point. And again, possibly going back to these feuding factions within the society and then the society families about what to do with these mounds, because clearly there was an interest in preserving them and then later an interest in getting rid of all the history within these mounds. Again, the giant human skeletons, et cetera. And the Smithsonian was started by the society families and the society membership because the fellow that would later become the president of the Confederate States of America, Jefferson Davis, was a U.S. senator out of the state of Mississippi. He was a member of the Society of Cincinnati. In fact, he married General Knox's daughter. And if I, as I pointed out before, General Knox was the fellow who got General Washington to, to start the society. So Jefferson Davis was married into the upper echelon of the society. 
He was also a member through his military service. He was a captain in the War of 1812, which is the membership goes from the early membership. It's my understanding that the officers of the 1776 wars and the 1812 wars were considered members of the Society of Cincinnati. And then later, the enlisted members of the Revolutionary Army, the wars of 1776. After the Civil War, apparently the enlisted members were then invited into the Society for Membership. So it seems Jefferson Davis was both a member and married into the upper echelon of the society. And he was the U.S. senator that was responsible for the the legislation for the Smithsonian. And the first study the Smithsonian conducted was a study of the mounds. And that was by two fellows named Squire and Davis, maybe circa 1848. And that's the, if you mark or are familiar with it, or folks of the interweb, I believe it's called the, the Ancient Structures of the Mississippi Valley. That's this map and survey of the, the first kind of project conducted by the Smithsonian. Ancient yeah. Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. Ephraim George Squire and Edwin Hamilton Davis were the were the explorers. And yeah, yeah they, they went through the Ohio Valley area and saw the Serpent Mound at the Newark Earthworks. Both of those were fascinating sites in their own respects. But yeah, Squire and Davis, they covered, it's not all encompassing, but they did cover basically New York all the way down to Texas. Huh, okay. In their survey. Wow. As far as the largest mound complex city still, that still survives today that folks can go see, that is Cahokia in East St. Louis, Illinois. And that I would argue that has a connection back through the society into the Knights Templar because... The largest mound there is the is called Monk's Mound. And that's because the French Trappist monks lived on the top of that mound for about 40 years between maybe 1600 to 1640, that region. And those were the Cistercian monks. That's the monks who started the Knights Templar. And that's the, they be the same monks that are represented as Friar Tuck in the Robin Hood tale. That's though he would be a Christian monk. Wow. That's essentially a tale about the Knights Templar. Right. Wow. So... The Knights Templar having a sort of footprint here is no surprise to those who are keeping track, but wow, yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like an Indiana Jones movie when you add that element to it. That the- It's funny you say that because I, I used to post a lot on Reddit years ago about these topics before I got started getting shadow banned. Likely getting, mostly getting shadow banned for uh, always blasting the McRib sandwich. The McDonald's was shadow banning me on, on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, I made like a, I made a whole like podcast episode, the mystery of the McRib and they immediately got banned on Reddit. Like in, in everything I ever posted about the McRib on there. I had a weird fascination with the McRib at the time, just as a bit. And uh, so it got banned. So I quit using Reddit, but when I used to post about these mounds, on Reddit, someone actually posted, sound, being a smart ass on there, someone posted, sounds like uh, the plot line for National Treasure 3, which I thought <laughs> was hilarious. I got a good laugh out of it. See, I love that. And I, you just kicked a memory back into my brain of a teacher showing us National Treasure during a class one day. And I always thought that was kind of interesting. I wonder if that teacher was a Freemason or just conspiracy <laughs> theorists like us. But, yeah. but yeah, it's definitely fascinating to see these people with such a pronounced interest in the mounds, especially now with all the speculation about what they could be. It seems like back then the assumption was that the Native Americans couldn't have done those kind of things and it must have been some other group of people. I mean, have you read much about how the 
these people sort of thought of the mounds, like what their writings were outside of maybe, I guess, their academic sort of dressing downs of the mounds? Oh, for sure. But I, if I can provide a quick book in there, Mark, on the Knights Templar and the mounds here in America. Are you familiar with the Kensington Runestone? It was a artifact yeah. found in a mound in Minnesota back in I think around 1890 or so. Yeah, yeah. This, I believe, is connected to what I referenced earlier that Chad was talking about in Michigan, these sort of what appear to be runic scripts on different stone structures and stone artifacts. For sure. But so, yeah, you're spot on. And the Kensington Runestone in specific is supposedly a Knights Templar land claim. And there's a strong argument to be made that's that is incorrect indeed what it is. And I find it interesting because the inscription on that land claim says on it says on the side of the stone it reads on this rise in land is the modern translation of the inscription. But if you take the this that is core concept on this rise in land, I mean that's describing a mound. And the runestone was buried in what would by all appearances be a mound. I've visited the location numerous times. It by all appearances is a mound site. There's no well-documented archaeologic surveys or ethnological surveys. So the science folks are way behind the ball, as usual, on kind of providing any kind of data on that site. But by all appearances, and by the description on the stone, it, that, that was a mound site, and that's supposedly a, a Knights Templar land, land claim from the 14th century. So there seems to be a long history of this mound activity you know, with these same, like I said, the same bloodlines of folk from the Templar down to the, down through the Society of Cincinnati mm. and on to our, our modern era of politics and power in America. These folks are still, as a hereditary society, these folks are still in power today with folks like John McCain, for example. John McCain, the U.S. senator from Arizona, he was a hereditary member. Presumably his son is now a member of the society in his since he passed. So that's John McCain number four. Because they just keep naming each one, each one of these guys John McCain in that family. John McCain number one and number two are the only four-star generals, father and son, four-star general combo in American history. They were, well, they were admirals, but they were four-star general equivalents in the Navy. Father and son duo. Only ones. And they're both members of the society, hereditary members. So these power structures do go on through today. And again, I don't know their specific interest in mounds today, but if you look at the society's activities... The mapping and surveying of these mounds, their deep interest in that, they had an interest in the mounds. If you look at their ancestors, their ancestors to the Knights Templar, like like I was saying with the Kensington Runestone as an example, in Monk's Mound, they had an interest in these mounds. So I often wonder what is that interest in these mounds today? Where does that kind of coincide and cross over with the the power structure and the power families? Right. including those ones out of, out of the Skull and Bones side. Because again, I find it very interesting the Skull and Bones founder set up shop in Cincinnati, the, the coveted city of the society, and became such a powerful family out of this out of the city. Right. As a William Howard Taft is the only, correct me if I'm wrong, he's the only individual who's ever been the Supreme Court Justice and U.S. President. Let me look that, that up because I, it may be that his father was the Supreme Court Justice, and then he I was think he the was president. the chief of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the no, United you're right. The only person yeah. to have ever held both offices. Huh. Interesting. And he's the grandson of the founder of Skull and Bones. He was a bonesman himself, correct? Lynn Taft. Right. 
Right. Absolutely. And he needed to be a member of the society as a result of being U.S. president. So, yeah. and he came out of Cincinnati. Again, I think there's a, an interesting kind of, like I said, crossover between these, the city of Cincinnati, the society of Cincinnati, and the skull and bones, not to get too conflated there with all the Cincinnati's. Yeah, it's interesting. It says after he left office, he returned to Yale as a professor and continued political activity working against war through the League to Enforce Peace. I wonder what that is, maybe obviously in relation to World War I, but I wonder how that, and maybe that was PR because they were secretly planning on funding this the Germans, maybe that didn't come to fruition yet. I mean, who knows? There's so much to look into here. But as we proceed further outside of Taft, are there any other connections you found to the Society of Cincinnati? I believe that, or yeah, between Skull and Bones and the Society of Cincinnati, excuse me, I believe that the Bush family may be another example of this sort of Connecticut to Ohio, also oil industry, which is centered in Ohio as well, right? There's a big conglomerate, at least at the time that the robber barons were around, right? A lot of that power was centered in Cleveland and Cincinnati. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And you're right. I believe the Bush family, by my estimate, do have hereditary membership in the Society of Cincinnati. But in addition to that, you have both Bonesman, George number one, and George number two, Bush, they're both members of the society by virtue of being president of the United States. So there's potentially three Bushes in, within the society at one time, because I don't believe that either George was the hereditary member. It looks like, because again, you can kind of make some guesses by looking at the the ancestral lines of some of these folks, as far as who would be the member in, by my guess, the Georges weren't hereditary members, but by virtue of being president, they're members of the society. But they have a cousin Bush that would be the hereditary member. Right. So the Bushes would be a strong family within the society is what I'm getting at. And you're right. They came to Ohio with, I believe it was Prescott Bush's father. I believe his name was Samuel Bush, if I'm not mistaken. And he worked as a VP for, I believe, Rockefeller Steel, if I remember that correctly. So again, Rockefeller, another society family. Yeah. Very interesting. It seems like, it seems like, as you were saying before, when it comes to these groups, the family connections make it all, but excuse me, you weren't saying this before. Let me redact that. But what came to mind as you were saying that the average person might hear that factoid that, oh, the uh, every president aside from what is it? Okay. What's the guy that Hinckley? No, what's the Martin Van Buren? Martin Van Buren. Thank you. Okay. Was his slogan, but everyone aside from him, they're all related. And you might hear that and think, how could that be? And then you learn about this society of Cincinnati, which is sort of dedicated to preserving this hereditary line, this line of inheritance to the country. It starts to make more sense how these families remain in power. I start to wonder I said earlier how, oh, it seems like these guys are just all about the politics and not really about the occultism side of it that they get sort of most of the flack for. It seems like maybe they have some sort of reincarnation shamanism going on where they're able to, I don't know, control which family they get born back into when they die. I mean... Because otherwise, what's the, what's the reward of creating these entire 
empires, it seems like it'd be more prone to like the Hunter Biden situation where you have like a wealthy kid who just kind of foils the or spoils the family's riches. It almost feels too good to be true that they've been able to maintain this power hierarchy unless they're doing something like, I don't know, occultish. I I hate to speculate too wildly here, but I wonder if there's something like that going on with reincarnation or astral projection, I don't know, immortality even somehow, right? I mean, have you ever wondered or wandered into that realm of speculation before? Oh, way too many times. Way too many times. I think you're spot on. I I look at myself, grew up Mormon, and so the Mormons are very much in the genealogy, so it's kind of always been an interest of mine. But in more recent years, I did some DNA tests to look at my genealogy closer into detail. And I, I kind of knew I had some gen- genealogy to like Jamestown area, Jamestown settlement, and some genealogy back to like the Massachusetts Bay settlement. But I didn't know any of the details of those subjects. So I, I finally kind of got into that subject or that research further, looked at some of those details. Yeah, and it's amazing to me. That's when I discovered, like you had mentioned, that all the U.S. presidents are related. I, I had no idea until I started looking into my own genealogy because I'm interrelated amongst all of that that uh, those families as well. For example, on just on one one side of my family tree, I'm a Washington. I'm a Madison. I am also uh, not a Dandridge, but a Jones. Martha Dandridge's George Washington's wife was her mother was a Jones. I'm a, I'm a Jones. As well, so for example, my for my one of my foremothers would be Martha Dandridge Washington's first cousin, but not through the Dandridges to the Joneses. So I got a lot of the lineage on that side, and that's the Jamestown settlement side, and then on the New England side through the same kind of families. And in both sides, they're all society members on both sides. So these families do 100% interbreed throughout the centuries, and seemingly continue to do that to this day. So. Why they do it? That's a great question. I think it is something along some sort of occult understanding or organizational attempts to achieve something. What that what they'd be trying to achieve, I honestly couldn't tell you. But yeah, it seems pretty evident that it's beyond sheer happenstance that these these families would would intermingle and interbreed for so long over such a long, large scale and a long period of time that it obviously shows a pattern of organization. And I can see it in my my own family tree. So you're definitely spot on that. And, I definitely do think it is a cult with that, uh, again, the purpose or the what they're attempting to achieve. Yeah, I couldn't tell you, but I, I guarantee it's creepy. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder myself when it comes to skull and bones, it definitely feels like when you walk around New Haven, there's a sense of sort of aestheticness if you or the word ascetic, like to be like, I don't know, another way to a synonym for that word it's almost like like spooky i guess is another synonym for that word but it's not quite as accurate as ascetic but i don't know how it's many the theme of their their structures and their campus is spooky yeah it has a sense of like uh, like <laughs> overbearing like it's looming i guess is a more familiar word for sure visited there i would agree with you on that assessment it has a spooky feel to it well and you go like up to the cemetery gate which is on the same road I mean, as a matter of fact, if you drove your car, if you could drive your car straight going past Skull and Bones and just continue straight down the road, you'd end up in the cemetery. It's like the gate opens up to the road there. And I wonder about that, 
the symmetry of all that and how they designed it and if it, there's some form and function there. But reel, reel me back in again. Are there other connections you found between Society of Cincinnati and Skull and Bones? I mean, there's the Taft Hotel here in New Haven. Obviously, Taft, we've mentioned him before. The Bush family, people are familiar with their connections. And obviously, Skull and Bones has tons of knights who have gone on to become O's, senators, politicians of all kinds, judges, etc. So it's definitely something where I could see people being like their reputation is bolstered by the fact that they're part of both organizations. I mean, is it kind of come down to just having them as accolades to be in these inner circles? Or do you think that it's reserved for those bloodlines? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think Quite honestly, there's, there is that certain air of those folks wanting to have as many badges as they can. I'm part of this organization. I'm part of that organization. But I do think the bloodlines is the most important aspect of that because for whatever reason, to some folks, it's important to keep these very specific bloodlines, for lack of a better term, intact. So that's the only thing I can imagine when you're having these hereditary organizations of these same families that are intermarrying and interbreeding over centuries there has to be some purpose to that. And it, it, it seems to be in large part, the best bet I can make is that they're trying to keep that one bloodline, quote unquote, intact. I don't know the better way to put it. That makes any sense to you. Yeah, no, I think it does make sense. And from what I've found, especially in the recent decades, Skull and Bones, like many organizations, has done a lot to try to live up to these new PC standards and the PR is important, right? So they are allowing anyone to become tapped into Skull and Bones as if it wasn't exclusive already. They're now allowing people of all races and religions, etc. When initially Skull and Bones was primarily people with a certain familial relation, obviously, so then there would be a inherent racial element there that's just implied and then also the religious aspect would kind of be implied as well because these people are all part of the same community. Now, as things grow and the nation grows, you see these people move, obviously, to places like Ohio, even California. I mean, I'm sure there are countless other examples of places that have been kind of propped up by people who graduated or were members of Skull and Bones or the Society of Cincinnati. But when it comes to... Skull and Bones, they definitely have loosened their criteria, maybe due to circumstances. Yale, at times, has given Skull and Bones some kind of flack, but for the most part, Skull and Bones remains kind of powerful even to this day. But is the same sort of thing going on with the Society of Cincinnati, where it's just inherently, it's not that they're exclusive to any one race or whatnot. It's just that they're a hereditary group, so they're able to sort of have that exclusivity without it being, I don't know, something that people get upset about. I mean, it doesn't. It seems like a like a more PC way of saying like, hey, we only want this type of person being a part of this group. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, it's a group of old white dudes, right? Right, right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that... and it's, They it's, do slip under the radar as far as the cancel culture goes because I don't right. think really anyone knows about them. <laughs> well, I think that's how a lot of these groups are at the upper echelon, and it's so hypocritical that it seems like 
the Klaus Schwabs and George Soroses of the worlds are happy to see people fight it out over cancel culture because they know it can never affect them at their level and they're totally guilty of it i mean oh absolutely yeah i don't know how they really skirt around that i guess again because to a certain degree they are still a quote-unquote secret society because a lot of folks don't know about the society of cincinnati but I think yeah it's i mean it's amazing that they've skirted the cancel culture because one, one of my favorite places in the world the the old one of the oldest bars in manhattan called mcsorley's old irish ale house it's it's was built I think around 1865 maybe or so around that time frame. But they got sued all the way up to the Supreme Court in the 1970s because it was a gentleman's club. Still until the 1970s, they didn't let women in there. So they got cancel cultured out in the 1970s because they were forced to make it a anyone any to all open to all the public kind of bar versus just a gentleman's club. Right. Well, the same thing happened within these universities like Yale, where the senior society groups were forced to admit women at a certain point. I don't know if they elected to or seeing the way the temperature or the atmosphere was changing or they got pressured to. But Maybe they got moved up to the Supreme Court as well, because I'm sure a lot of folks got sued around that same time. Possibly. For the same activities. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, it seems like some of these universities, specifically Yale, can be like above the law in a lot of ways, even like as far as more particularly as far as like the local laws go. But but yeah, no, it definitely I mean, you had that whole Kavanaugh thing. He's a Yale man. I don't know if he got <laughs> in trouble for something. And so there's people from Yale are not immune for sure. But I don't know. I don't I wasn't alive back then. I have a very large book called Skull and Keys which talks about skull and bones, scroll and keys, and the other senior societies and how they changed through the decades as Yale changed. And it's kind of sympathetic to Yale, the book is. It's not like, it's nothing like what Anthony Sutton wrote about skull and bones, but it's interesting to get that more of a mainstream perspective on a topic that people don't necessarily even discuss in the mainstream albeit politically charged with this sort of a left-leaning kind of ideologue bullshit. But anyways, don't let me go off on. <laughs> no worries, man. Yeah. Uh, to answer a question you asked before, I just kind of, I just kind of popped back in my head. I heard you mention before Lieutenant Nathan Hale's connections to Yale, but I don't yeah. recall what those connections were. Can you fill me in on what those were? Yeah, he was a student at Yale. During his teenage years, I don't I think he actually, I don't remember how many years he was there because he went right into the service. I wonder if his connections at Yale, though, made him eligible for the Culper ring and that whole group of sort of spies. That, sure. I don't know if it was Washington or whoever recruited them, but but yeah, yeah Hale. It was Washington. You're right. Hale was America's first spy, as the legend goes, and there's a statue of him at Fort Nathan Hale, which is like Army Reserves, I think, or something like that. It's a base. It might be Coast Guard, too. But there, there's a base in New Haven named after him, and then there's a statue of him on Yale's campus. There's also a statue of him at Langley CIA headquarters. So, and I think there's only a, there's only like three other places where they have Nathan Hale statues. It's like those two places, and then like one or two other places, and they're all with the same reputation as Yale and a CIA headquarters. So, but yeah, that's as much as I know. But yeah, he was a student at Yale. Nice. 
Yeah, I, I recalled there was some deep connections. There was a statue, I guess, was what I was coming to mind immediately. But I guess I didn't realize there was so much veneration of Nathan Hale across the quote-unquote intelligence community. Well, yeah, America's first spy. And yeah, I, yeah. I believe he was a, wasn't he a martyr, right? I mean, he died Basically, for the yeah. cause. So, yeah. Makes sense, then, I guess, in that regard. Yeah. yeah that, so he would have been a member of the society, at least. Uh, obviously, he died, as you point out, he was a martyr. But he would have his hereditary membership. Would be, he would have somebody in the society representing him because he was an officer in out of the Connecticut chapter of the society. And right. And I have I have numerous roots into that chapter of the society in my family tree to include General Jesse Root, no pun intended. He was the uh, he was the Continental <laughs> Army general, so the, the one in charge of the society of Connecticut or the Connecticut chapter of the society. There, he also represented Connecticut. I believe the. The Constitutional Congress, I believe. But yeah, so Hale would have been within the Connecticut chapter. His membership would have been passed down through somehow through his family, brothers, children, obviously first. I don't know his exact lineage or family tree, but I'm just pointing out that Nathan Hale seems to be of a great interest and importance through Yale history, through the intelligence community history, and he would have been a member of the society for sure. Yeah, and then, of course, members of Yale University went on to found... The CIA, I believe, was it? No, I don't think Bush had anything to do with the actual founding of the CIA, but he was. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Prescott Bush. Okay. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. Okay, so then I'm on yeah, the right H- track. Hitler's banker? Yeah, he definitely was involved in the foundation of the CIA. Right, and then his son, the brothers obviously, and, uh, his son, president and former head <laughs> of the CIA, too. So, right. yeah, I don't know that it's a coincidence that the I don't Bush... think it's coincidence at all, especially when George Bush testifies in Congress in the 70s. George Bush, number one, that is. Right. But he never had anything to do with the CIA. And then the 90s rolled around and all the Operation Zapata stuff relative to the Bay of Pigs invasion gets circulated. And suddenly it's obvious that George Bush had a lot to do with the CIA before the 1970s. Right, right. And so the Nathan Hale archetype was forged there and carried on through these guys. And yeah, it's so interesting that oil too is this like, it's alchemical in a lot of ways. And that's another thing that I've examined with all of this. And I'm sure you've kind of scratched your head at this too, where you see like these occult interests that coincide with what seems like political power, greed, motivated moves, they're married with these sort of occult ritual type actions in a lot of cases. Oil having this sort of alchemical implication in the sense that you're taking something from the earth that's like raw, dark, black, kind of that negredo stage of alchemy, and you're refining it until you sell it (laughs) to the people. And then what do you have? You have gold, right? I mean, you make billions of dollars, you have gold there from oil. And that's certainly what they did. And spycraft is a part of maintaining that this power structure, it seems. But I mean, geez, we could talk a lot about where all of this goes back to. I do feel like we kind of just beat around the bush on a bunch of different topics, which that's no slight to you or I think this is just the nature of the conversation today. And I enjoy it. But kind of wrapping up here, because we got about 25 more minutes until we're at the top of the second hour. So we can go as long as you have time. I'm not in any particular rush. 
But when it comes to the society of Cincinnati today, I mean, obviously Biden and every president is just like a part of it inherently. But are there any other prominent people on the main stage that are a part of the society of Cincinnati? I mean, could like someone like Elon Musk, obviously he's not an American person, but are there anybody that are in that kind of category of notability that are a part of the society of Cincinnati? Anybody we'd be surprised to find out are a part of the society of Cincinnati today? That's a great question, Mark. I have, I often ask myself the same question. And well, I do my best to track some of the current membership. In large part, the ones that are, that are put in their resume, so to speak, are often heads of banking corporations, insurance companies, that sort of thing. Again, a few a few on the side of politics. Like I said, former U.S. Senator John McCain, he was a member, a hereditary member. And so there are a few that in that, again, put in the resume that are, that are more public figures. But I've not come across with anybody as to the degree of Elon Musk or of anybody of that nature yet. But that would be fun to find out. But no, I don't think in large part, characters like that are part of the, the society's inner circle or families. As you point out, he was uh, an immigrant to this country, and the society families are deeply rooted in the the origin families of this country, dating back again to the early 1600s, mid 1600s, in, in large part. Right. But yeah. The, there is still, yeah, there is still a lot of power. I would say wielded by memberships within the society, absolutely. Because again, it's a lot of financial families, a lot of folks involved in the banking industry and whatnot, a lot of insurance. If you want to know who runs the city, just see which buildings to tell us one in town, and it's always the insurance company. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, that is the case in Connecticut, the in New Haven. I mean, Connecticut, Hartford is kind of like the insurance capital, but in New Haven, it's the Connecticut Financial Center that's the tallest building. And I wonder, I don't know exactly what their role is, if that's just an innocuous sort of name for a company or if they have something to do with the government, but... Uh, I found it fascinating that the acronym CFC numerically is 363 and the height of the building is 383 feet tall, but there are three pyramid shaped like roof attachments. They're not like a part of the building. They're the roof, the pyramidal roofs are suspended by beams, just vertical beams. So I know what you're talking about. We have that here in Cincinnati, something like that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. And you said you've been to New Haven, so you might have even noticed this, but it's kind of looks like three pyramids side by side. And I wonder, like, are they measuring the building from the tip of the pyramid or from the line where the, the last floor of the building me- meets the roof? Because if that was the case, then maybe the actual height of the building minus the pyramids is 363 which is the same as the which is the same as the the measurement of the building but no for sure i think you're spot on too because i'll give you this example i know the building you're talking about there and it does look a lot like the building here i'm referring to which again is the insurance company it's great american insurance it's the former company or the company formerly owned by 33rd degree freemason carl lindner carl lindner's involved in all sorts of various Iran-Contra-style financial scandals and whatnot of the 1980s and 1990s. Formerly richest man here in town. I suppose his son is now the richest man in town, but he built his buildings the same way. He wanted it to be the tallest building in town, so he put these pyramidal structures on top as well. So the building is one height, and then with those little pyramidal structures on top, 
it's another 20 or 30 feet. Listen, I know exactly what you're talking about. So I think it is intentional. I think these are very, I think there's an occult understanding of this architecture of the skyscrapers. I often jokingly compare it to Ghostbusters because that was kind of the plot line of Ghostbusters, right? There was a strange occult group that the architect was a member of for the the skyscraper where they where all the ghost activity went down. Right. right. And uh, they had built, they, they had basically used the occult understandings from their teachings to to construct this skyscraper in some sort of occult fashion, right? Was that not the storyline? You understand what I'm saying there, Mark? Absolutely. Yeah. So I yeah. think there's a lot of that goes on amongst is what I'm going to amongst these things. I think storylines like that are just Hollywood kind of telling us the real deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It definitely feels like with this group and other groups, Skull and Bones, Society of Cincinnati, they have some sort of power that they're harnessing that's not tangible. And they work off the benefit of the doubt that most people just chalk it up to all rich people get richer and lucky people, yada. I wonder how much of that is due to what my friend John writes about in his book about dumbing down America and how they've sort of, John Kleizek that is, how they've taken the education system through groups like Skull and Bones and created a situation where people don't learn about the Society of Cincinnati. They don't even learn about the Continental Congress and how there were, what, 12 or 13 presidents before George Washington officially became the president. I mean, you mentioned the Treaty of Paris earlier, which was in 1783, right? So Correct. there were how many presidents before George Washington was the official president, right? So yeah, uh, I think it was five more years before, yeah, before, before Washington took office as first president. Yeah, so there was, yeah, two. I'm in the Constitution State. So, are, I mean, you grew up here too. I mean, did they teach us that in school? I don't remember learning that in school. I learned that when I was like 18 years old that there were presidents before George Washington here in the United States. I'm still trying to master the English language, so I didn't really learn a whole heck of a lot in public school. So, I didn't definitely, definitely didn't get into the Constitutional Congress and the, the, the dozen or so executives that, that were part of that before the official. U.S. or the official American government. Well, you've certainly mastered some things because I've learned a lot in just this short conversation and through listening to your conversations with Stephen on the farm. I wasn't aware that you had your own podcast, and I'm glad you mentioned it so I can mention it in the intro and the outro and the description of this episode. So I'll have you plug that towards the end. But before we start to wrap up here, you mentioned something before that I can't just let sweep under the rug, so to speak. (laughs) You said that Fort Knox, which was named after this guy, Henry Knox, who is the sort of credited founder of the Society of Cincinnati. You said that there's no gold in Fort Knox. And I'm curious curious about this because he's from Boston. He's sort of like a quintessential American, like grew up through like sort of colonial times into the American Revolution at 25 years old. So like we were describing before, like these guys, they just kind of were born into this war and took up arms and fought for their country. That's the romantic side of it. But what's the real story with Fort Knox? Why was it named after him and where did all the gold go? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Yeah, we get a lot of that Disney fairy tale kind of history versions of history, don't we? Yeah, and I think I think places like Fort Knox have 
probably have some more of an occult purpose. I think a lot of these military installations were built on mound sites, for example. The birth, quote unquote birthplace of air, aerospace, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, the where the Wright brothers at least practice before they went and took flight in North Carolina, because there's always a dispute about where the birthplace of flight was. Was it North Carolina or was it Dayton, Ohio? But obviously Dayton, Ohio is where they were doing all the engineering. Some, under. some people say it was Connecticut. We found some stuff on my Esoteric America oh, yeah? podcast nice. that, that credit people in Bridgeport, Connecticut for, for flying the first flights over Long Island Sound. That, that'd be awesome because it seems like at least folks from, from the society stole that storyline via the Wright brothers. I bet. And if that's the case, I'd be curious to know that story, though. That'd be, that's fascinating because obviously years past that in the modern era, the Connecticut has remained a power center for the aerospace industry out of the military industrial complex. For sure. Sikorsky, which is now owned by Lockheed Martin. I mean, they... GE. I mean, just headquartered in Fairfield County. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, big. United, Cor- United Technologies Corporation, UTC, they're also headquartered there. It's a, it's got to be, it's a very Bell helicopter, very strong aerospace through there, through the western edge of Connecticut. Right. Right. Now, uh, what was the question I just asked you? Excuse me. I forgot it. The gold. The gold. Yes, yeah. So yes. I think Hollywood movies tell the same storyline. If you look at films like Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance. The storyline there is the Nazis bombing around Manhattan just to steal the gold out from underneath the World Trade Center's buildings, which, you know, that's kind of the same storyline as what I'm getting at. That's kind of the same storyline as Fort Knox is somebody alluded those the gold at some point in time and no one asked those questions because you can see and hear folks talk about 9-11 all the time, but I don't ever see or hear folks talk about the gold that went missing during 9-11. And it's not a secret the gold went missing. There's government investigatory reports. There's media reports, contemporary to the time, but no one really talks about all the gold that went missing. And I think the same deal goes went down with Fort Knox back in August of 1971, I believe it was, circa. We'll just call it around that time. Richard Nixon was forced to go on public national broadcasts. On, at the time, there's only like three cable and three channels on the TV. So everyone got a little tricky dick one night on a national broadcast telling the world that the nation of France had requested their gold back from the Federal Reserve. It was allegedly being held in Fort Knox. And Tricky Dick had to say, we don't have France's gold. And that's when the U.S. dollar was publicly no longer backed on the gold standard. And that was what led to the petrodollar agreements with Saudi Arabia there shortly thereafter. But obviously, there's a problem with the new amount of gold in Fort Knox. And no one's really had a good audit or understanding of to what extent that problem is. But clearly... If it happened in 71, I have to imagine here in 2023, it's empty. Because they, otherwise, they let folks know what's in there. You know what I mean? They wouldn't be hiding it for 50 years. Right. Yeah, wow. It's, it's curious going all the way back to the beginning of the country. We had this close relationship with France, and then you see that story with France. I wonder how much of the events that took place there with Nixon the momentum started all the way back with the French and American revolutions. Now, at some point, France is like, hey, give us our gold. And it's been how many hundreds of years? We helped you with the War of 1812. We helped you with the Civil War. We helped you here. You helped us in Vietnam. Let's do this thing. Right. But there's a lot to be said there. That's a good point for sure. If I can give you one more final kind of society Cincinnati framed of a conspiracy argument. 
spectrum. It's potentially, obviously, one of the number one kind of geopolitical, parapolitical conspiracies, and that's the JFK assassination. So JFK, obviously, being the president of the United States, would have been a member of the society by virtue of being president of the United States. And would you believe Lee Harvey Oswald was most likely a hereditary member of the society? I would. Is, yeah. And I can give you the quick lineage on that. He, his his great-grandfather was a colonel in the Civil War, and that man's father, so Lee Harvey Oswald's second great-grandfather, Oswald, was a major in the Georgia chapter of the Society of Cincinnati in the, in the wars of 1776. Wow. Yeah, I would believe that, because as far as I've read, I don't know how many people are aware of this book. I think it's the author's Judith Very Baker, and it's about her relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald back when he was still alive and how he was actually this patriotic dude who learned Russian in order to become a spy for the American cause against Russia, right? It is sort of communist fervor with the McCarthyism during his teenage years. And he goes off and learns how to speak Russian. And yeah, so I've, after hearing that story, I've always questioned what people say about Lee Harvey Oswald, but it kind of makes sense, tracks with what you're saying, that he would have been this patriotic kid with a patriotic sort of background. Oh, for sure. And I think it's kind of where we started the conversation with how his history and media kind of twist these characters and twist the perspective on these characters, these high profile characters, be it one of the founding fathers be a Lee Harvey Oswald. And over time and over propaganda, these characters get twisted and, and contorted into these usually evil characters that there's typically not much to that story as far as the, the quote-unquote official narrative to, to frame these folks in a negative light. That's what I'm getting at. Right, right. Well, JJ, this has been a fantastic conversation. Tell the folks about Operation GCD. I mean, obviously you cover stuff like this. What else can they expect to find? And I imagine they can listen to it wherever they're listening to this podcast. So, yeah, what can people expect to find when they subscribe to Operation GCD? Well, Mark, I appreciate the invite, and I, I definitely enjoyed the conversation. Nice to, to meet a fellow constitutional state. Statesman. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I like that a lot better than nutmegger. We could go with constitutional <laughs> statesman and not yeah. a nutmegger. <laughs> Way better than nutmegger. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, again, appreciate the invite. And again, great conversation. We'll have to talk some more mounds again in the future, but I enjoyed the, the conversation and regarding the Society of Cincinnati and the, the Skull and Bones folks because those are within those two groups, there's been a lot of power wielded across American history. Again, and into our modern era here in America, as we pointed out with the some noting some of the high profile folks that have been a member of both organizations, in fact, like the Bushes and whatnot. And see, we see what kind of power they've wielded over recent decades and their network of what I would what I would allege is a criminal syndicate. So it's obviously a lot of power is what I'm getting at. And so these aren't these are organizations that have created this country. And obviously what I'm saying is still very much are controlling many aspects of this country. And I do believe that there are numerous feuds that have erupted throughout the both organizations from day one, noting the, uh, the Burr-Hamilton debacle and the duel. And uh, again, all the way up to what I would what I would claim is another society dispute between the Oswald and JFK situation. So yeah, I talk about a lot of these kind of subjects on Operation GCD. It's what I like to I build my podcast as, as a shenanigan-infused jury into the mind of this 
particular garbage can dude. That's me. And so I talk about a lot of parapolitical topics and secret <laughs> societies like the Society of Cincinnati and Mounds and topics of that nature in America, generally speaking, because I feel like much like the founding fathers get kind of twisted and lambasted their characters and their storyline goes. I'm a ardent believer in the concept of America and the values that were instilled in the U.S. Constitution. So it's something I promote as a undercurrent of basically any episode heard on uh, Operation GCD. But yeah, post the podcast on any anywhere podcasts are found. I have a link tree on my Twitter and my Instagram. I'm not a Luddite, but I recently just uh, got an Instagram. I just am not big into social media. So well, I'm glad you did because that. that's how we got in touch. And yeah, folks, yeah. please support this man. I didn't realize that it was Operation Garbage Can Dude. Is that like when the garbage pail kids grow up, they become garbage can dudes? It wasn't my original intention, but yeah, that's good. that's a good interpretation. I like it. Yeah, I, uh, it's basically just my smart ass way of uh, saying that I'm a, I live in a world that's uh, basically equate to a garbage can. I'm just a dude living in it. I love it. Well, that's definitely how it can feel sometimes, especially, I mean, I was just in New York City this week. So yeah, that that's a city quickly turning into one giant garbage can. Not that it always hasn't <laughs> been that way. I mean, certainly had been my entire life, although my grandparents say it was once a beautiful place. So I'll just keep that optimism that maybe it'll become that again. And I think that's what the operation's all about. And in one sense of it so i appreciate you being here joining me to talk about all of this stuff and i want to have you back on not only to talk about the mounds and the templars but i completely forgot one of the questions i had loaded up for you was concerning all that and i don't want to get into it now but i will mention while we're still on here that i found this really interesting connection and maybe other people have found it before me but I found this really weird connection between Jackie Kennedy and the this the painting of the Madonna. And I don't remember it all off the top of my head, but I'm going to send you the slides. Yeah, that Especially. sounds interesting. I'd like to I'd like to learn more about that. And I'm glad you I'm glad you you mentioned you forgot something because I also forgot. I also I also did, like recently been covering a lot of the Idaho four murders right on the Operation GCD podcast. And my and asserting my my theory that based upon the evidence the states produced that the suspect involved in that crime is not guilty, and it's pretty obvious he's being railroaded. Huh. And and I also cover a lot of smiley face killer topics and kind of my theories and how that relates to the the mounds. Yeah, yeah, all of that is stuff that we should definitely have you back on to talk about. I'm glad we focus on the Society of Cincinnati today, but yeah, for sure. There's this interesting connection with Kennedy, Onassis, and this like family that goes back to like the original Yale family name. It's starting to come back to me now, but the name Yale University comes from a man who was a part of the British East India Company or the Dutch East India Company, one of those. No, and- so drug smugglers. Right. And well, that uh, makes sense because I find her to be an interesting character. Let me interject. I find her to be an interesting character because she married that Greek drug smuggler after Kennedy was shot. Really? Aristotle Onassis, yeah. Wow. He was a big-time drug smuggler. He took her last name? Oh, I'm sorry, wait. 
disregard not an SSA Aristotle. I can't maybe I can't think of his last name right now. What was so maybe that's a European thing. Who knows? I don't remember whatever her husband's name was after uh, after Kennedy. Yeah, big time Greek Greek. Uh, yeah, I'm drawing a blank on his name. You're right. That is her name, isn't it? Yeah, the uh, it's a Greek fella. <laughs> that's the best I can tell you. Yeah, and uh, she married him, and he was big time. He was uh, he was involved in a feud with Howard Hughes. He's often attributed to being involved in that whole that whole gemstone affair relative to Howard Hughes at the end of his life. Right. I'm trying. To, I'm just. I'm ragging my brain. I can't sift through all the uh, the malted hops and bong resin covering my brain hole to think of the guy's <laughs> name right now. But the best thing to say is a great. He's a great fellow. But yeah, he was definitely involved in the international drug trafficking trade. So that's interesting that she comes from that in her ancestral roots as well. No, I think you remembered that correctly. It says here on Wikipedia. His name was Aristotle Socrates Onassis. Well, there you go. Okay, um, yep. So yeah, that dude for sure. Yeah. Deeply involved in the Jimstone affair with the, at the end of Hughes's life and all that whole mystery, which again is according to folks like me, Brussel connected to the JFK, the whole JFK thing. So it's funny that all that is kind of circling around drug trafficking. It sounds like between the family of J- Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and her uh, in her own ancestral roots and the guy she marries after uh, JFK shot. Yeah, wow. I mean, this guy looks like a straight out of the Godfather movie. He's a gangster, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, geez. So, yeah, we got a lot left on the table. I'm happy to have you on the show and have you back on as soon as you will allow it. And in the meantime, folks, follow up with Operation GCD. And uh, yeah, thank you for being here, brother. We'll talk soon. Yeah, man. I appreciate the invite, Mark. Great conversation. Likewise, yeah. And uh, until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are, in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. That was our conversation with JJ Vance. He has his own podcast called Operation GCD going tune into that and you can listen to him on our friend steven snyder's podcast of which he's made several appearances on that show i want to correct myself i got into a misnomer that i think i've talked about before and you know it deserves to be corrected because it's important this is our country's history i value it i think it's important i'm going to try to talk faster i've heard people say i talk too slow um So I'm going to try to talk a little faster for you guys, if that's okay. So, apparently, there were 14 presidents before George Washington, right? That's that's the misnomer. And why people say that is because there was something called the Continental Congress. If you already know about this, well, good for you. I imagine most people don't because they didn't really focus too much on the Revolutionary War in school and i think there's a reason for that we're going to explore that right now in this extended intro so people who are familiar with this they've heard of the 14 presidents peyton randolph who served from 1774 to 1774 literally 47 days he was succeeded by henry middleton who served for four days peyton randolph took his seat back for 14 more days Uh, until he was replaced by John Hancock, who many people have definitely heard of uh, because of his signature. This is now a sort of uh, phrase or 
a new word, a new way of explaining a signature. You're John Hancock. Uh, then Henry Lawrence, who was there for a year. Oh, John Hancock, two years. So much longer than Peyton and Henry. And Henry Lawrence, different Henry, uh, comes in for a year and 38 days. John Jay follows him. Samuel Huntington follows him. That Huntington name comes up later in the uh, Skull and Bones Thomas McKean succeeds him for 118 days. John Hansen, Elias Boudinot, Thomas Mifflin, Richard Henry Lee, John Hancock again, and Nathaniel Gorman, Arthur St. Clair. Interesting to see the St. Clair family in there. And Cyrus Griffin. So uh, it's interesting. You know, people think that, oh, these were the first presidents. Um, there's an explanation here that says beyond the similarity of title, the office of President of Congress bore no relationship to the latter office of President of the United States. As historian Edmund Burnett wrote, the President of the United States is scarcely in any sense the successor of the Presidents of the Old Congress. The Presidents of Congress were almost solely presiding officers, possessing scarcely a shred of executive or administrative functions, whereas the President of the United States is almost solely an executive officer with no presiding duties at all, bearing a likeness in social and diplomatic precedence. The two offices are identical only in the possession of the same title. Nonetheless, the presidents of the Continental Congress and the presidents of the United States in Congress assembled are sometimes claimed to have been presidents before George Washington as if the offices were equivalent. The continuous nature of the Continental Congresses and Congress under the Articles also allows for multiple claims of being the first President of the United States. This would include Peyton Randolph as President of the First Continental Congress, John Hancock as President when the Declaration of Independence was signed, Samuel Huntington as President when the Articles were ratified and took effect, Thomas McKean as first president elected under the Articles, and John Hansen as the first president under the Articles to serve the prescribed one-year term. Hansen's grandson's campaign to name Hansen the first president of the United States was successful in having Hansen's statue placed in Statutory Hall in the U.S. Capitol, even though, according to historian Gregory Stiverson, Hansen was not one of Maryland's foremost leaders of the revolutionary era. Presumably due to this campaign, Hansen is often still dubiously listed as the first president of the Congress under the Articles. So here you have it. One of these classic uh, misnomers that floats around out there in history just waiting to be corrected by someone like me. Uh, turns out George Washington was president the entire time that the Continental Congress was electing their presidents, right? So uh, if you look, you'll see that technically, I think George Washington became commander-in-chief in 1775. So uh, very shortly after the Congress uh, was formed, they created this position uh, and it was initially meant to be the leader of the Continental Army. And as the Revolutionary War led on, it eventually concluded with the Treaty 
of Paris in 1783, and that's how we get to today's topic, the Society of Cincinnati, which was formed in 1783, as you heard in the intro and throughout the conversation. So there we have it, folks. Do you think that you know, this explains why America has been perpetually at war? Uh, we had these uh, Congress presidents who were intentionally set up with very little power. I wonder if that's a smarter way to go about it. Uh, it even says here, uh, the president of Congress was by design a position with little authority. The Continental Congress, fearful of concentrating political power in an individual, gave their presiding officer even less responsibility than the speakers in the lower houses of the colonial assemblies. So there you go. The presidency was a largely ceremonial position. There was no salary. The primary role of the office was to preside over meetings of Congress, which entailed serving as an impartial moderator during debates. The president could not meet privately with foreign leaders. Such meetings were held with committees or the entire Congress. So yeah, who knows? I mean, it does seem like some of this made its way into the executive branch of the United States. Now, uh, the president is supposedly balanced by Congress and the judicial branch, right? So the three branches, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive, we all remember that from civics class. So there you have it. But I wonder if George Washington, uh, you know, resigning in 1782, sort of following that kind of archetype laid forth by Cincinnatus. I wonder if that was some sort of ritual and that's why George Washington has been uh, lionized as our first president when clearly there was some contention for that um, and still to this day. I mean, it's still on Capitol Hill, this phony baloney, uh, whoever that guy, I don't remember his name. So anyways, uh, yeah, that's my little spiel on the presidents that were not presidents before George Washington. Look forward to more history deep dives in these extended outros. Uh, follow up with JJ Vance at Operation GCD and support our sponsors who support this show. You know the Hit Kit. We love the Hit Kit. The number one way to get lit keeps all of what you're smoking on safe and sound right there with your lighter. You can use the promo code CRAZY at checkout to save 15% off. That's right. Promo code CRAZY, 15% off at checkout. Let's hear it again. That's right. The people love it. And if you don't have a hit kit this summer, what are you waiting for? Speaking of waiting, uh, if you're like me, your patient pothead, you like to grow your own, okay? And the best way to grow your own is with seeds you can trust, okay? You don't want to go take the time to raise a plant that's going to end up giving you snickle fritz, okay? You want the beasters. You want the number one heady, super dank, super smoke. I love those 30% sativas because I'm just crazy. And Olympic Seeds, they're going to do that for you. They started out in Washington, made their way through Colorado, and now coming to you from the tropical volcano cliffs of Hawaii. Olympic Seeds is what you need if you're trying to grow some good shit. And that's all I'll say for now. 
hit up my man Austin. The info is in the description. Austin at olympicseeds.com or you can follow him, reach out to him on Instagram at 1950s Duck Web. Be sure to tell him that you heard on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So that's all for this extended outro. Shout out to all of our Patreon, Substack, and Rockfin supporters. And shout out to Dr. Birdwell for helping us get closer to our $1,000 goal. We're still not close. So if you want to see us put out three episodes a week indefinitely, we're going to raise $1,000 by this Friday, July 21st. So when this episode comes out, go straight to Venmo, go to Cash App, go to PayPal and send us some dough so we can keep this show on the road in the flow with all the guests you love to know and some that you don't know yet but you will know soon send us a one-time donation whatever you want $25 $50 $100 $5 whatever you want at mystic mark on venmo at mystic mark on paypal at um well cash sign mark steves jr jr on cash app and then we've got our ko-fi store buy me a coffee uh you can donate with bitcoin or any crypto of your choice just reach out to me via email so thank you to everyone who has supported the show and of course the best way to support the show is on patreon at that eight dollar tier because i'll sign you up for the Substack, so you get access to both i don't post all the articles from Substack to patreon just doesn't look good on patreon so if you want both for one price sign up at that eight dollar level and i'll subscribe you to our Substack and our patreon uh, but for now we've got a bunch of great people on the patreon soaking up that bonus content we've got all kinds of great stuff there some conversations with lauren jeffries if you've only heard part one of our conversation that was episode 265 go back and listen if you haven't listened to that already and then sign up on the Patreon so you can hear not only part two to that conversation, which was a very long three, four hour conversation, but two other bonus episodes with Lauren and a couple more on the way, as well as a soon to be uploaded conversation with Occultist Lux. I'm going to be putting trailers out for those, but I'm going to start doing something, I think, where... You can only get access to certain episodes if you're a supporter. I know some people divide their show in half. I might decide to do that. Hint, hint. But for now, I'm just going to stick with what we're doing. Where you get the whole free episode and you get some bonus content if you sign up on the Patreon. Oh, I got to remember to hit mute on my phone. That should not be happening during the outros. So yes, sign up on Patreon to support the show. That's how I can continue to do this at the rate that I do it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go get a, a real job, and I'm not going to be able to podcast as much as I do now. So if you like the show, if you value the show, if you enjoy the show, support us on Patreon, on Substack, on Rockfin. You get access to the bonus episodes. And hey, like I said, you'll keep, me, uh, keep the episodes free for everybody uh, for a, maybe a few months longer. Because I am thinking about switching to a different model. Either that or we go to ads. Which I don't see why ads are really a problem. I don't think anybody has a problem with ads. If you want ad free shows. Sign up on the Patreon now. Because the ads are coming. Alright. Thank you folks. I'll see you later. Have a wonderful 
summer wherever you are in the now. Peace. Extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went saw bomb before guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a while fuel cell car. They each they own, you could stick with your old ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. Keep your blood so heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Come on, you in there, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. My family thinks I'm crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Just maybe. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. And if it dies, what it's all kind of hazy. Come on, he's in that feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pap thinks I'm un-American and shady. I'm feeling unhinged lately. The counters are the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an atheist. Anything out, so you know.